c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... Oh, no, 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 don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. Histories and Mysteries with Jessica and Janelle. I'm Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. And we are coming to you mid-Canadian heat wave. I'm dying. <laughs> it feels like only a few months ago that Lytton, British Columbia was the hottest place on the planet. And then, the next day, it burnt to the ground. And, by the time it hit the next morning, somebody had already changed the Wikipedia page from is to was. Oh, that's bleak. <laughs> that is cold, ironically. Oh, I mean, like, there's a heat wave warning here in Halifax, and I can actually feel my DNA denaturing as I sit here. I can't have any fans on because my laptop makes a horrible enough sound as it is. This is a boob sweat episode. That That is 100% what is happening. Like, oh, yeah. I am fully dressed for this, and I already regret it. Yeah, the the noises you hear are just me lifting them up to dab underneath them. There's this is a sweaty episode. This is this is a moist episode of of we because we, we used to be fat French and fabulous, and then we switched to histories and mysteries. And then here's here's the ironic thing: I looked up histories and mysteries, and there is another podcast called Histories and Mysteries, also featuring a host named Jessica. Not Janelle, though. That is too rare. <laughs> if, if they were also Jessica and Janelle, I probably would have done something drastic. <laughs> I will steal their flesh. <laughs> like, they're gonna wake up in the middle of the night with me crawling around on their ceiling in a fucking night, night vision goggles. <laughs> if something that similar to us exists, then either, like, we've stumbled through a parallel dimension or, like, we absolutely just have to wear their faces. There's no other recourse here. I can feel the matrix folding in on itself. Quite stressful for me. <laughs> um, it's incredible how little it takes to get us straight to face harvesting. We go there <laughs> right away. <laughs> it's 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 a very fine line for me between like live and let live and straight up Buffalo Bill skin suits. It's uh, <laughs> there can be only one. I escalate quickly. Um <laughs> Uh, in, in other news, I, I was published in the Quillette this week, uh, which I believe Yay. now makes me a strange middle-aged libertarian man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I expect to be delivered an inappropriately young Asian wife any day now. <laughs> I think it's part of the package. Yeah, <laughs> you just... know give you a 24-year-old wife from a foreign country as soon as yeah. as soon as you publish. Yeah, and she's going to abandon me the moment she learns enough English. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I see you're familiar with my Auntie Vivian. <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic move. It's a classic move. <laughs> Live your best life, girl. Hey, libertarians believe in entrepreneurship. They should respect that. <laughs> Respect the hustle. But yeah, it's it's basically just about, I don't know, nepotism and corruption in the Canadian comedy industry. So It's, <laughs> it's not quite a niche enough topic, Jessica. You need yeah. to go nicher. <laughs> we have to go further. <laughs> One step beyond. But it, it it's 
you might enjoy it. It's on the Quillette. It's under my name. You can look it up, I guess. Whatever. <laughs> it is what it is. It is what it is. It's Janelle week this week, so I thought we'd take a break from our usual murders and disappearances to cover something that we've never done before on this podcast. Yay! Which is a child trafficking lesbian social worker who ran an unlicensed orphanage that was actually a front for what was probably the most lucrative baby selling ring in American history. You know, we have to go far to be novel. <laughs> <laughs> We've done a lot of episodes. We're really like... <laughs> That's some clickbait shit. This is, this is the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> Our first baby selling ring. Ooh. Yeah. Not that we haven't mentioned baby selling rings. We've obviously mentioned baby selling rings, but only in passing. Specifically in the Burke and Hare episode. I was going to say, I can barely get through a daily conversation without mentioning baby-selling rings, but this is the first time we've had a dedicated episode. Well, one particular baby-selling ring, so... Yeah, we'll, we'll get to the other. This week... It'll be a series. <laughs> Nobody... We're starting at the top. Nobody can top this particular woman. It's all downhill from here. She set the record. This week we're talking about Georgia Tan, an American social worker who stole an estimated 5,000 children from 1924 until she was shut down in the year 1950. So, I mean, she made a career out of this. 26 years of baby selling. Ah, what good years they were. <laughs> like an old oh, yes. established brand. When I think, what's, what was a good year for human rights? I definitely think early 1940s. Yeah, she's gonna be like one of those, like, what do we, we call them? Like, oh, out, old, outdated, artisanal companies, you know, established in the year, blah, blah, blah. Are you calling her, like, the Pepperidge Farm of baby selling? Yeah. Ironically, it'd be better called Cabbage Patch Kids, but... Oh, no. Um... <laughs> so, the majority of the children stolen by Georgia Tan were sold in black market, quote-unquote, adoptions to wealthy families. Ooh, quote-unquote um, adoptions. Fancy. Quote-unquote adoptions, the best kind. Um, I mean, they were, they were pure human sales. Like, there was really yeah. not a lot of uh, How adopting going on. How else is an infertile, upper-middle-class woman supposed to mysteriously acquire a baby? <laughs> With her husband's money. Well, there's no point at all. Um, so, Georgia carried out her scheme under the banner of the Tennessee Children's Home Society, before Georgia Tan took over, this was actually a legitimate nonprofit agency that arranged adoptions for orphaned and abandoned children in the state of Tennessee. After she took it over, it was just a vehicle for child selling. That's all that it was. Just immediately. Oh, pretty much. It, she was brazen. She made really no attempt to hide what she was doing. They should have looked her up on, uh, on Charity Compass. <laughs> I will file a complaint with the BBB. <laughs> In addition to thousands of child sales, Georgia Tan also oversaw numerous child deaths. Oh, Officially, 19 fuck. children died in her care, but based on witness testimony, experts believe that the true number is probably closer to 500. Oh, that is... Which is quite the discrepancy. That is a, that is a big difference. Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> and that has to be cutting into your profits. Come on. I mean, yeah, kind of. But at that point, like, she was making so much money that she didn't really care. Yes. Protect the product. Uh, what is the worth of a human life? Not that much, obviously. Depending on how you define things, this makes Georgia Tan one of the potentially one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. Wow, that is fun. 
And as you can probably guess, the high demand for children and babies, especially, like, white infants with blonde hair and blue eyes, meant that Georgia Tan had to resort to increasingly... creative methods of acquiring children. Yeah, we don't want all of these, like, frequently adoptable children. You know, all these immigrants that just are just giving these kids away, but they're all fucking Italian. How much money can you get in for an Italian baby on the open market? <laughs> I mean, this is Tennessee, so there's actually not that many Italians to choose from. No, but there are plenty of bog people who would not ordinarily make desirable children, but uh, with the right fake backstory, they'll do. <laughs> yeah, at, at a certain point, you're just going to be stealing, like, the rural Appalachian poor's kids. Oh, 100%. Many, many, many wealthy families in America contain an element of Appalachian swamp person because of the actions of Georgia Tan. Wee! We'll get into it. There's, there's going to be some awkward 23andMe's coming back in the next it's couple of be years. Fun. Among some of these families. They're like, am I really your daughter or was I stolen from the swamp people? <laughs> <laughs> the impact of Georgia Tan's actions continues to be felt today in more ways than one. For one thing, many of her victims are still alive. She made her final, like, adoption slash sales in 1950, which was only 71 years ago, and she predominantly trafficked in infants. Yeah! Yeah! Many of her victims are still alive. Tons! They may not uh, know that they're her victims, but they're out there. Yeah, stolen swamp babies. They walk among us. <laughs> Genuinely. They've just kind of snuck them in there. Many of Georgia Tan's surviving victims and their descendants likely don't know that they are victims of Georgia Tan, or that they have any connection to the Tennessee Children's Home Society scandal at all. Yeah, I don't think they kept, like, great records. Well, they... no, not really, and the records that did exist were sealed. Um, we'll again talk about that. She's the reason that adoption records are sealed. Whoops. Uh, like, genuinely. She is the reason that North America seals adoption records. That was something that she implemented in her lifetime. There's no possible way that someone could have ulterior motives for sealing adoption nope. records. But, uh, yeah, many of the children that she sold were too young to remember their origin, so if it's up to them whether their parents revealed that they were adopted. And many people who knew that they were adopted by the Tennessee Children's Home Society simply didn't pass that information on to their descendants. It became something of a family secret for many of these families. Oh yeah, because it's super lurid and weird. It is lurid and weird. So many of them just simply didn't choose to pass that information down. So there's plenty of people out there who have no idea that grandma was born on the bayou. And their families are happy to keep it that way. So if you're from California or New York, because that's where the majority of these children were sold... And you've recently done a 23andMe or an Ancestry DNA test that popped up with some relatives in Tennessee and Mississippi that you didn't know about. Uh, I have answers. <laughs> I can solve that little mystery for you. Oh, especially if they say that you're originally from, like, French Canada? That's suspicious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you're, like, from, like, a white middle-class suburban family in California, and apparently you're at least 30% French-Canadian... That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> it means your grandmother was purchased out of a hotel room. <laughs> Sorry you had to learn what? this way. <laughs> yeah. Not really a worse venue for learning that information about yourself. No. Um, no. 
But to understand how Georgia Tan was able to pull off this incredibly brazen baby-selling ring, we kind of have to cover some of the history of adoption and child welfare in America. And be warned, it's all horrific and bleak. No, no part of this is good. Janelle, this story starts pre-Great Depression. I know it's going to be atrocious. Turn of the century child welfare is not exactly a happy fun no. sing-along fun time. It's not good. Adoption was not a mainstream thing in our society until fairly recently in our history. At least formal adoption. Informal adoption has always kind of been a thing. This person used to be your niece, now they're your daughter. Yeah, you know, your cousins come to live with you because their parents die and now they're just your siblings. Or, you know, people just accumulate a flock of children because the neighbors die and you take their kids in. Like, that's always been kind of how adoption has worked. Yeah, like a mother duck. (laughs) somebody in the community just takes the child but the idea of a formal legal process where you adopt a child that you have no prior connection to is a very recent thing in our history and it actually was georgia tan herself who basically single-handedly normalized adoption in america yay i mean yeah she's groundbreaking a real pioneer Surely there are better ways this could have come about. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. This feels For like an inevitable thing. Adoption. It's kind of weird that it happened like this. I mean, of course America only normalized adoption when it became profitable for one person to do so. Mm. But uh, for much of the 19th century and the early 20th century, America had a whole lot of unwanted and orphaned children and kind of like no idea what to do with them. Uh, For the first time ever, people were moving out of small agrarian communities where somebody would just take in your child, and they were moving to urban centers where they knew nobody, so that infrastructure where somebody's just like, well, your parents are dead, come along, Sally, like, that's gone. Mm -hmm. There's kind of nowhere for you to go. Um, Yeah, like, the death of the extended family really disrupts traditional uh, attitudes towards adoption. Yeah, I mean, your your safety net, in case your parents died, was always like, well, grandma lives in the same house as us, so... And our aunt lives next door. Like, that was always your safety net against being a street urchin. Um, and then that was just gone. Uh, there's a reason that street urchins figure so prominently into a lot of classic literature, but you don't really see a lot of street urchins running around today. It was just a lot more likely for children to end up living street urchiny lives back in the day. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where it was an artifact of the rapid urbanization during the Industrial Revolution. Like, that's when that becomes, like, a huge prominent part of culture. And it's largely because this is the first time where people are en masse migrating away from their extended families. There was just a lot more, yeah, opportunity for unsupervised street urchinery. You know, and that's the one thing, like, when you're at a steampunk show, they, they don't they don't show that bad. No, they don't show the industrial accidents part. Yeah. You know, you get you dress up as a bunch of kids and like like amputees and we're making them wear goggles. <laughs> also, like, dad got his head crushed by a piece of machinery, so now we have no parents. Like <laughs> Classic. (laughs) That's kind of what happened. Work in the Industrial Revolution era was dangerous and safety standards were non-existent. Hilarious, the idea that you should take safety into account. 
Yeah, you know, people used to just get brown lung from working in cotton factories because we didn't think they deserved ventilation. Oh, we didn't even think they deserved fire exits. Putting windows on this factory would be expensive. <laughs> they used to lock them in the factory. If it caught fire, that was oh, yeah. your problem. Uh, the classics. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. That's gonna be an episode someday, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. It's just fun. Barrel of laughs. Oh yeah, we'll move on from child baby selling rings straight to industrial accidents. That's, woo, keep the good times rolling. <laughs> Always expanding. Disease was rampant. Access to medical care was poor. Women died in childbirth all the time. And men died at work all the time. Oftentimes, um, when a parent died, the family was left destitute. Women often worked for money in those days. Um, it's only rich women who have never worked outside the home. Mm -hmm. Poor women have always worked outside the home. Always. <laughs> always. Don't let anybody uh, tell you that that's a recent phenomenon. Women have worked outside the home forever. <laughs> yeah, this two spheres bullshit, that is an artifact of middle to upper class Victorian ladies. They were the only women who got to be decorative. That's it. My great great grandmother was a servant in the 1800s. <laughs> My family have worked outside yeah. the home for as long as there have been homes to work outside. It's not literally new. literally my entire lineage is farmers. And I have I have <laughs> bones like an ox. <laughs> you do. Every part of you is load bearing. I could shot put a baby cow. <laughs> like I was literally biking down the street the other day, a dude caught my eye and asked me to help him move a shelf. <laughs> <laughs> People can tell on sight that I am hardy stock. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the thing. Often when one parent died or got very, very sick, the family would become destitute and older children would have to just leave the home when their parents couldn't afford them anymore. You'd have to... You're 11 now, son. It's time to strike out on your own and support yourself. Immigrants who came seeking a better life were often unable to find work for long periods of time. And they often weren't mm -hmm. able to take care of their children in the meantime. So this is around the time when orphanages pop up. And despite their name, the majority of children who stayed in early orphanages were not orphans. No. Stays in orphanages were temporary things. When you weren't able to care for your child anymore because of a crisis or a financial situation or a job loss, you would drop your children off at the orphanage, and then you would go get them later when the situation was better. Yeah, it's more of a, it's more of a, take a baby, leave a baby. <laughs> I mean, ideally it's the same child that you dropped off, but we're not picky. Yeah, we're, I'm, I'm not judgmental. I left a baby, <laughs> I'm gonna take a baby. If it happens to be the same baby, good for me. Um... <laughs> Like one of those little free libraries, but for, like, yeah. children of German origin. <laughs> Close enough. It, it, it's, more of, it's more of, like, a semi-permanent daycare or, like, a homeless shelter for kids. Illegitimacy and unwed motherhood were also hot-button issues of the day. When have they not been? Yeah, and, um, and we, we decided to fix that by lobotomizing all of them, and that worked. Jessica's like, yes, this was the solution to all social ills. Moving on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Promiscuous women, unwed mothers, disabled people, lobotomies. Works every time. 
<laughs> Jessica's like, this is my stance. Lobotomize the sluts. <laughs> that was I honest that was the genuine policy, Janelle. <laughs> I know. Oh, I know. I have we studied this in the history of psych. They were like, hey, so at the beginning of this field I'm speaking as a historian. We lobotomized feisty women. That was wrong. <laughs> yeah. Probably shouldn't have done that. Was that what we should have done? No. We could all agree it was weird. <laughs> We have regrets. <laughs> Before you learn any modern psychology, they make you sit through that piece over and over again. Lobotomizing and sterilizing people is wrong. They're like, this is why we have ethics panels. We're taking a controversial <laughs> stance. <laughs> Having a child out of wedlock was often like a ruin. It was, it was viewed as a ruinous thing for a young woman. And these children were often quote unquote sent away. Regardless of how the young mother felt about it, there was she had no financial means to care for the child. It would ruin her prospects for marriage. It would ruin her family's reputation. And so they needed places for these children to go. The church was becoming less and less of an option. So prior to the 1920s, children who weren't living with their parents for whatever reason had fairly bleak options available to them. If you weren't able to go live with a family member, they commonly ended up as vagrants, stayed in overcrowded orphanages until they aged out at around age 14. That was when they kicked you out of the child welfare system back in the day. Got involved in criminal activity, were sold as cheap labor to factories and farms where they worked as indentured servants, or they simply died in a gutter somewhere. Them's the options. Today, infants are considered the most desirable from an adoption standpoint. Yeah, because they're so sexy. Oh. Oh. Sexy, sexy children. That's the most upsetting response to that possible. <laughs> you said they were desirable. I was just, I was yes-anding. <laughs> you can't blame me. I took an improv class once. <laughs> There's more than one definition for words. <laughs> prior to the 1920s, infants were kind of out of luck. They were the least desirable type of orphan as they couldn't work. Oh, because they're... So much work. They are work, and they contribute nothing financially. They are freeloaders, and we cannot have freeloaders. This feels like it's an expression of the switch from, like, children as laborers to children as aspirational life goal. Yeah. This is, this is like, before the era where you dump all of your, like, unrealized dreams onto your children. Children are, like, a pure survival thing. They come out of you whether you want them or not, and then they do work on your farm. That's That was children for a long time. Yep. You poop them out, and then they eventually, they can stand, and then they can hold a shovel. I mean, people cared for their children back in the day. It wasn't just like, all right, I hope Scarlet Fever gets that one. Fuck Jimmy in particular. But, like... No, but it was a little bit more pragmatic and less of, like, a, an aesthetic thing. People weren't, yeah, people had a very different relationship to their children in the early 20th century. Um, yeah, like boss and employer. Yeah, you didn't, you just didn't fuss over every aspect of their life to quite the same extent. But especially this idea of taking in somebody else's child, it was sort of seen as, like, the charitable Christian thing to do and not like, ah, I desperately want to be a parent of more children- Somebody fetch me a blank child that I can imprint on. Like, that's... <laughs> infants couldn't work, which meant that nobody wanted them. Most orphanages didn't take infants or toddlers. 
you had to be old enough to hold the shovel before they would offer you room and board. Many American orphanages did not accept infants or babies at all because they couldn't work. The way that many orphanages funded themselves back in the day was just sort of like renting out the children as day labor. Um, so a baby was useless. 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 Well, I mean, like, orphanages and, like, a lot of other institutions like school kind of ran on prison rules where the inmates are providing most of the labor. Oh, yeah. They kept the place, like, running. <laughs> but unfortunately, the lack of places for infants to go meant that many unwanted babies were simply abandoned in the street or left in the woods to die. Ooh, fun. I told you, the past is a brutal place, kids. Brutal. You know, because, like, people are always just like, oh, yeah, like, leave the weak to die, like, in Sparta. I'm like, why? We don't have to go back to ancient Greece for this shit, okay? <laughs> no, and that was often the fate of infants born to unwed mothers or girls in those kinds of situations if their family wasn't willing to be supportive and there wasn't anyone else to take the infant in. They would just sort of leave it somewhere. Set and forget. So, large cities eventually opened something called foundling hospitals to curb the number of babies being ditched in the streets to die. See a need, fill a need. Yeah, we had a real dumpster baby problem. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew that was a social problem that we, like, had to create institutions to address, but here we Just are. Just industrial child abandonment. <laughs> I mean, it was all very strange. It was like, women would ditch their babies in the streets to die because having a child out of wedlock was unchristian. So we would commit infanticide. You have to have an alternative. If you are going to have this much stigma of having a kid out of wedlock, you need to have a non-murder option. <laughs> well, that's like... Yeah. That's the <laughs> thing about getting an abortion is like, no one has to find out about that, but everyone's going to notice if you have a toddler. So if the only way to escape the social shame... <laughs> <laughs> Some people are going to take option two. That's where foundling hospitals came in. They were they were implemented to curb, like, the rampant amount of urban infanticide that was happening. These were not hospitals in the modern sense of the word. They were basically orphanages for infants, uh, generally funded by churches or wealthy private donors. Actually, many of these things are still around, but they've kind of morphed into more modern child welfare organizations over time. Foster care takes babies now. We're good. It's an all-in-one system. The other truly horrifying option was something called a baby farm, which is... It sounds bad on which its again, face. Which, again, we have mentioned before. We have mentioned baby farms we before. We have <laughs> incredibly mentioned baby farms before. I can't believe this has come up twice. In passing. On one podcast, but here we are. <laughs> so, a baby farm was effectively a place where you could drop off a child that you, you couldn't care for or didn't want. It would be raised for you for a monthly fee. So, baby farms would employ wet nurses to breastfeed the children, and they sort of sound like they could work, but the profit motives here are horrifying. Yeah. You know what's way, way less expensive than raising a baby for a fee? Not raising a baby, but still taking the fee. Yeah, that tends to yield a higher profit, and that's kind of exactly what happened. Uh, baby farm is a derogatory term. They had some sort of official name, but uh, these places were unregulated. Many of them were disreputable, and they had infant mortality rates that were absolutely through the roof. Death from disease, neglect, and straight-up infanticide were common. All of my favorites. That's what I call oh, it. Ugh. Fun weekend. Greatest hits. 
So the beginnings of the modern foster system started to take shape in the mid-1800s, when New York City finally hit something of an orphan crisis. In the mid-1800s, the city of New York hit a population of 500,000, and around 30,000 of those people were homeless orphans. <laughs> or, or just homeless children. That's a lot. That is an apocalyptic amount of homeless children. City Hall must come to order. <laughs> it's, it's a crisis, and to make it worse, alcoholism, gambling, and petty crime were rampant among these children, and something had to be oh done. Oh my gosh! Among the children?! Yeah. Among the children, people were tired of seeing wasted eight-year-olds mugging people in the middle of the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is uh, a real just, problem. Know, rich man walks out of the out of a bank and a bunch of surly sixth graders just beat the shit out of him. <laughs> That's basically it. You just see like drunk children playing dice like in the street. That's. It's not good for your property value, if nothing else. No, it's uh, questionable. Is that whiskey on your breath, Timmy? (laughs) (laughs) You go straight from bottle to bottle is basically the system that they had going. So a local minister named Charles Loring Brace eventually decided that the solution to the issue was to start placing all of these drunk, homeless children in good, wholesome Christian homes. Or any home. Literally any home. <laughs> no, they gotta be Christian. We're, we're, we're drawing a line in the sand on that one. He created the early precursor of the modern foster system, which was the orphan train system. Orphan train? An orphan train is exactly what it sounds like. A train you put orphans on? <laughs> no, literally, it's a train that you put orphans on. I could not be more literal about this. It is a train full of orphans. So it's a paddy wagon for drunk preschoolers. Yeah, so these homeless children often lived in the gutters of New York City, giving rise to the term gutter snipe, which is something your grandmother would call you. Did we ever find out why they're called urchins? I don't really know. Because, like, I know what an urchin is. Like, I know what a sea urchin is. But were the urchins named after the urchins, or were the urchins named after the urchins? That's the question I have. It's a chicken and egg problem. (laughs) Spiky sea animal with no brain, or homeless child living on the streets? I'm putting that into Google. What came first, urchins or sea urchins? My fa- You want to know my favorite fact about sea urchins? Uh, they can get sunburns, so if you give them a little hat, they will wear it. <laughs> that is a fun fact. Like, in the in the wild, they'll, like, pick up, like, a little, like, shell or something, and they'll wear it on the top of their head. But, like, you can just give them, like, a plastic cowboy hat, and they'll do the same thing. <laughs> that is a very fun fact. Okay, so it originally meant hedgehog. Oh, Interesting. From Latin, management hedgehog, and uh, then it meant a mischievous child, oh. and then it meant a street urchin, and then I think it meant a sea urchin. So uh, it, two urchins have nothing to do with each other. We just named the sea creature after the hedgehog, I think. <laughs> Creative. <laughs> like, that looks like a hedgehog, yeah. but it's in the sea. Sea urchin it is. Yeah. Because, like, I don't think there was a lot of sea urchins just, like, hanging about, getting drunk, and playing dice. God, but imagine if there were. So an orphan train... (laughs) That would be amazing. An orphan train (laughs) was exactly what it sounded like. Homeless children were rounded up en masse and put onto a train to the Midwest, where they could be bid on in passing towns as farm labor, 
or in later days, selected by families looking to take in foster children. Yay! The train would stop in a random-ass Midwestern town. Families would come out and be like, well, that's a sturdy-looking one. We'll take that child. And then they would just take the kid home. That was the orphan (laughs) train system. And it actually worked better than you think it would. Okay, Um, so it's actually like one of those traveling libraries now. Yeah, we're now a traveling orphan library, but you can't give them back. You're keeping this one. For the most part. They did actually monitor families after taking the kids home, and children were removed from the families if they suspected abuse or neglect. And according to their own statistics, placements had a success rate of about 87%, which is actually pretty solid. What counts as abuse in 1860 is probably uh, yeah, fast and loose that's with the question. that definition. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried. I think you can beat your children with farm implements back in the day and it still counts as good Christian parenting, but you know. I, I, I think it was considered worse if you didn't beat them. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the real abuse. Spoil, sparing the rod. Spoiled the child. You know, I have had so many conversations with older relatives who are just, like, proud that they used to get the strap at school. And I'm like, I don't know if I trust the average teacher in the 1970s to understand when and why they should beat a child. I, (laughs) and like, you know, you always get, like, that one, that one aunt who's just, like, or uncle, it's, I think it's usually an uncle that's just like, you know, I used to get beat all the time, I turned out fine, but it's like, they never in that do. case, it's my aunt Kathy. Oh, yeah. She's she's actually extra not fine. She's super not fine. I've read the news article, <laughs> she's really not fine. The thing that hit me the, the, the hardest about that news article was how worn out her parole officer sounded. He sounded exhausted. (laughs) Like, they are trying so hard to make this elderly white lady not go to prison. And it's not working. (laughs) She snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. You know, it's just very strange having an adult woman in your life who can't come within 200 feet of a gun or a dog. You know, you've truly lived when those are the legal conditions placed on you by the state. I am one generation off of junkyard, so... (laughs) (laughs) So you relate to this whole story. I am a hick. Oh, 100%. This is very relatable to me. My my grandparents were, like, poor sharecroppers. My great-grandparents were. So, like, I probably have, like, the odd relative who got sold to California. (laughs) This pertains to you. But no, I, I undoubtedly might have a relative who might have gotten sold. I didn't, definitely didn't buy anybody, though. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was the rich people in California kids. and New York doing the buying. It was poor people in Tennessee who, like, left their children unattended. They were the ones who got their kids stolen. We were the donors in this system. <laughs> Unwilling. So there might be some, like, weirdly hefty upper-class New Yorker is reminiscent of me. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> well, and the Peugeot jeans are strong. I mean, this is the Warren jeans, but we are a hearty bunch. <laughs> like, and that's that the thing, is like, I don't look that much like my dad. I have his eyes, I guess. I kind of have his freckles. But like, at literally every other dominant gene on my mother's side su- suplexed my dad's. <laughs> you look like your mom made you in a lab with her own DNA. Absolutely. And all of my siblings as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Your dad's DNA didn't stand a fucking chance. 
And like he has t- he has one other kid, Ronnie. She also has his eyes. Otherwise, looks quite a bit like him, but not money my mom's kids. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> they all look exactly like her. <laughs> there you go. Well, none of the options listed for children so far, including foster placements off the fucking orphan train, were meant to be adoptions. The aim of early child welfare programs was not actually to promote the welfare of children. That was sort of a bonus. It wasn't actually the goal. The goal was to address the social ill of having abandoned children. We just don't want to be stepping over homeless children on the way to the stock market. Yeah, the beneficiaries of the child welfare system were not intended to be children. It was the rich people who were tired of seeing dirty, unsightly, unsupervised children running around and just wanted somebody to deal with the problem. A lot of these families took these children in off the orphan train because it was the Christian thing to do. Um, But they weren't part of the family. No, and they probably knew it. No. So for better or worse, Georgia Tan pretty much single-handedly pioneered the American adoption system and she created many standards of adoption that are still in place to this day. It's it's actually shocking that more people don't know who this woman was. She's really, like, flown under the radar in terms of American history, which is remarkable. So in the 19th century and early 20th centuries, when Georgia was kind of gearing up to start her baby selling, eugenics was still a very popular idea in mainstream society. Uh, people were really all about the eugenics. Can't be overstated. Loving it. This this is this is the example I bring up every time somebody's like, well, this is a progressive idea, ergo it's good. And I'm like, ah, but do you remember who the first progressives were? Because they were super down with eugenics. Holy shit. <laughs> it was seen as kind of a scientific advancement, was this idea of like, ah, race science. Oh, no. But even without race in the mix, because Georgia Tan dealt almost exclusively in white children. Oh, you just can't get money for the black ones. Yeah, that's that's literally the entire problem. Not a profitable business. If they had been profitable, she would have sold them too. She would sell any child who wasn't nailed down. But um, this idea where you were going to permanently adopt a child whose origins you didn't fully know and treat them as a family member was something people were very wary of. They didn't want to adopt children from disadvantaged backgrounds because they kind of saw them as damaged goods from inferior bloodlines. Uh, there's there's really no way to cushion that blow. There's no non-harsh way to say no. that. Um, this was some racist, classic, like, loaded bigotry here. Oh yeah, these people were more than content to have these children live in their home, work on their farm or their boat. Um, they were happy to provide them with guidance, with structure, discipline, education, all of those things. Yeah, they weren't a family in the, in the sense that an adopted child today is family, because, you know... They come from dirty white trash gutter snipe jeans, and we can't have that shit at all. So... (laughs) Yeah, no, gross. You were once related to a laborer? Ew. Ew. White families were also very hung up on only having white children at a time when the definition of white children was very narrow. We can't have an Italian child sneaking into our precious white bloodlines. Greek? Gross. There's a clip to take out of context. No, no, no Greeks... No, no Italian, Spanish, oh, ugh, no, they tan in the summer. And this is also Disgusting. the days of one-drop <laughs> laws, which means that if a child has any black heritage, no matter how much of a fucking stretch it is, 
The idea was that if you couldn't entirely account for somebody's bloodline, you didn't actually know that they were white. Today, we would not consider a person who is one thirty-second black to be a black person, but back in the day, oh, they sure did. No. <laughs> yeah, no, like, if someone looked at you today and was just like, um, I'm, like, one thirty-third African-American, you'd be like, you're white, Stacy. Fuck yeah, off. fuck off, Stacey. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't mean you can wear that. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so today people really want to find some sort of non-white heritage in their background. Back in the day, you wanted to hide that shit as well as you could. That was the big fear, that, that these families would adopt a child only to find out that their, that their bloodline was not what they had thought it was. And that was fine for a child living in your house. Nobody really cared if the random orphan train child wasn't pure white. They're not family. They're just milking the cows and learning some Bible. But uh, turning them into a family member who's going to carry your name, big deal. There is actually a famous short story by Kate Chopin written in 1863 called Desiree's Baby. And although it doesn't pertain to adoption, it really captures white anxiety over the possibility of accidentally having a white passing mixed race child. Um, it's, it's free online because the author's been dead forever. Highly recommend giving that one a read. Having an- having- actually, no, it is about adoption. I lied. That story is 100% about adoption. Liar! I trust nothing anymore! I trust nothing! No, it's, it's a short story about a family in Louisiana who adopt, like, a child they find on their doorstep, and they just sort of go with it, and then later on she gets married and has a baby, and the baby turns out not looking super white, and so it leads to this whole panic where they think that they've adopted- this black child after all so it's it's a whole thing oh is this the one where like the twist turns out that like it's you do know the story you big nerd yes <laughs> it turns out that Desiree... yes i do my dad talked about this when i was a child yes, the spoiler alert for a story that came out like in 1863 uh desiree the adopted child turns out to be pure white but her husband turns out to have had a black mother that he just hides and he hoped that his black genes would not come out in his own children, so he accuses Desiree of being non-white, and then she kills herself in the swamp. <laughs> Yay! Happy fun story. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's the kind of literature you could only make at a certain time. If you made that today, people would not fucking believe it. <laughs> well, it it's, it's captures the anxieties people had, and the reason that this was like so unpopular at the time. Especially because, like, there's a lot of social pressure if you are mixed race, but you can hide. You get a massive social and financial advantage of just passing. Yeah, and people are very, like, people are very panicked about the idea that an adopted child might pass. Um, that they might adopt a black child without knowing it. To show you how bad the scope of this issue was, in the 1920s, the Boston Children's Aid Society, one of the largest child welfare organizations in the country, averaged five adoptions a year. Ooh, boy. Five adoptions a year. That's how bad this was. Nobody wanted to adopt children. And this is a time when there are literally more orphans than there have ever been. There's far more orphans proportionately back then than there are today. And nowadays, we actually have tons of adoptions, but people still prefer white babies. That is still 100% true. Yeah, that's still true. But while the Boston Children's Aid Society was averaging five adoptions a year, in 1928 alone, Georgia Tan finalized 208 adoptions. Ooh boy, that's a suspicious stat. It's a suspicious statistic. It's not good, actually. It sounds good on paper, but we'll dive into this. 
how did Georgia Tan turn a child welfare system that was basically a suck bucket of human sadness into an insanely lucrative business for her while also permanently changing the state of adoption in America? Georgia Tan was born Beulah George Tan on July 18th, 1891 in the town of Philadelphia, Mississippi. You people need more names for cities. That's all I can say. Yeah, also I can kind of understand why she went by Georgia. Beulah is genuinely a terrible name. Ugh, Beulah. Beulah. Georgia was the second child of Beulah Yates and her husband, Judge George Clark Tan. Um, so I guess they just compromised. The kid gets one of each. Like, why? After you lived a whole life named Beulah, why would you inflict that on a child? That was a phrase that my father used for vomiting when we were kids, talking to Beulah on the big white telephone. That's (laughs) one of my dad's dadisms. I have no idea if that's like a saying or if that's something my father made up. So Georgia grew up in an enterprising and achievement-oriented home. Um, Her father was a judge and her mother was a school teacher. And it was unusual at that time for female school teachers to continue working after they married. Typically you couldn't even do it if you wanted to. George's father was determined that his daughter would become an accomplished pianist, and he really didn't care what she had to say about it. He was apparently the controlling type and just kept her in piano lessons from the age of five all the way to the to adulthood. Which sucks because Wow, that's a Yeah, well skill. Georgia Tan fucking hated the piano. Hated it. Hated every aspect of it. Oh, I'm shocked. Basically, the only way you can make a person hate the piano more than by forcing them to play it for, like, their entire childhood is maybe to, like, pull out the keys and whip them with the the strings. (laughs) That's not to say that Georgia Tan had an unhappy childhood. She reportedly had something of an idyllic childhood. She was fascinated by her father's work in the courts and reportedly spent hours in his courtroom just to observe the proceedings. And it was at home that she first became aware of the issue of needy children who had nowhere else to go. George's father often encountered neglected and abused children in his line of work and was in the habit of just bringing them home. There was kind of nowhere else for them to go. Her father had no real idea what to do with these kids either and once told his daughter that he wished he had a committee of a teacher, a doctor, and a minister to decide what to do with these kids. This was apparently what first piqued George's interest in quote-unquote helping wayward children. Mmm, I don't like the quote-unquote there, but like... The rest of the thought is great. The quote-unquote. It's always the quote-unquote that gets you in the end. You would think that, like, a woman who came from this background who would have, like, a ton of empathy would be an excellent social worker, but she's like, ah, these children are helpless. My father takes them home to be kind to them. What if he sold them for money? Like, how do you even arrive there? (laughs) (laughs) Like, everything else up to that point is just like, if it wasn't for what happened next, this would be very touching. This would be a charming portrait of a successful woman. It would but be. But then. But then, no. She could have been one of history's heroes. She easily could have been. She was on track to be. Like, she was in the pocket of some very wealthy and influential people who saw her as, like, a hero of children. And then after everything broke about what she'd actually been doing, they sort of slunk off and never mentioned her name again. <laughs> Whoops. Well, that's why she's really not more well-known than she is. It was it would have been very embarrassing for rich people and powerful people of the time if her name had kind of continued to be brought up. It was bubbled to the surface. Better that we forgot the whole deal. Wait, let's not talk about that thing where we all bought a bunch of swamp babies. 
and then lauded and congratulated and lionized the woman who sold them to us. Yeah, we'll just gloss right over that. So Georgia attended the Martha Washington College in Virginia, today it's known as Emory University, um, or Emory and Henry College, and at her father's insistence, she earned a degree in music in 1913. But again, she fucking hated the piano, even after studying a degree in it. That didn't help anything. Um, she had z- Oh, I'm shocked. <laughs> no, she had zero desire to be a musician. She just, she did this because her dad made her. What she really wanted, however, was to be a lawyer like her father. So she returned home to study with him and actually managed to pass the Mississippi State Bar Exam. At the time, you, you really didn't need a law degree to be a lawyer. You just have to know enough law shit and pass a test? Yeah, pretty much. You're a lawyer now. Wow. But did you also need a penis? I'm under the impression that was a requirement. Well, that's the problem. She didn't have one of those. Her father would not allow her to practice law because being a practicing female lawyer in the American South in the 1910s was something unheard of. You needed your dad's permission? And it was seen as improper for the family's only daughter. It was unladylike. The expectation was that she marry well and that she have children to carry on the family. I mean, like, she probably shouldn't have been a lawyer, but, like, for reasons very different. Yeah, there's different reasons. It's because of the moral corruption. It's not because of her gender. Absolutely not. Vagina? Optional. Being a good person? Mandatory. (laughs) It's because her soul is a barren wasteland where no compassion can thrive. But, you know, other than that. (laughs) Um... Georgia. Women can be soulless monsters, too. <laughs> oh, wow. It's equality. Hashtag, what wave of feminism is that? <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag lady monsters. Hashtag feminism. <laughs> God. Uh, Georgia happened to be a lesbian, so marrying was not high on her list of things to do. At least marrying a man. The only person she could marry back at the time. Instead, she decided to pursue one of the few careers that was considered proper for ladies at her time, which was social work. Which is shocking to me because, like, social work is fucking human chaos. Yeah, can confirm. Uh, I'm not a social worker uh, by licensure, but I work in social services, and I always have, and it's screaming chaos all the time. It's the, it's the number one profession where you are most likely to see another, an adult human being shit on a floor. Oh yeah, been there, done that. But uh, if you last more than two years, you're just dead inside. That's... That's how it goes. Um, I th- I feel like I should put on record, though, I have never sold a child. It's very important that I clarify that. <laughs> Not even one. Not even one. Not even a single child. Uh, Georgia kind of fell into social work by accident. She started helping her father arrange placements for some of the abandoned children who ended up as wards of her father's court. Eventually, she became something of a local volunteer social worker, assisting police with abandoned children and babies left on doorsteps. Ah, she sounds lovely. I know, like, on paper, she sounds fantastic. If she hadn't sold the children in her care, she would be on a stamp. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She'd be a hero. Like Josephine Baker. Yeah, she'd be up there with Margaret Mead. Like, we (laughs) we would celebrate this woman. So eventually she decided to make her role as volunteer, informal social worker official. Uh, She then attended Columbia University for two years to formally study social work before returning to the South. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Exciting. Again, I have never sold a child. (laughs) Yet. Also, they tend to leave Georgia Tan out of the Columbia brochures. Gotta say. Shocking. I don't know why. One of the most illustrious alums. They don't don't put her in in the promotional materials. 
Funny enough. What are you ashamed? Yes. <laughs> we have the most prominent baby seller in America. I mean, it's something. It's something. <laughs> it's an achievement. So after returning home from New York City, Georgia worked as a social worker in Texas for a short time and then became the receiving director at a receiving home in Mississippi operated by the Mississippi Children's Home Society. And for those of you who have not chosen to have professional careers of nonstop human sadness, uh, a receiving home is kind of an old-fashioned name for a home where children in crisis would stay temporarily. Like a halfway house. Yeah, uh, we would use group home now. It's kind of an early group home. Mm -hmm. It's a bit more homey than an orphanage. But uh, it was while working here that Georgia met her lifelong partner, Anne Atwood. Anne was working as a house mother at the receiving home and was eight years younger than Georgia. Anne Atwood was also a single mother who had recently given birth out of wedlock, which was a pretty big oops at the time. So to cover it up, she began using the fictionalized name Anne Atwood Hollinsworth and tried to pass herself off as a widow, which was an extremely common tactic for unwed mothers at the time. You would just make up a fake husband who died. <laughs> yeah, in a war, I don't care. Pick a war. You got diphtheria, fuck off. Th there was enough genuine widows running around that you really just needed a ring and a convincing story. Uh, <laughs> if you'd moved recently, even better. It's impossible to really establish a timeline for Georgia and Anne's relationship. Like many lesbian couples throughout history, they had to pass themselves off as besties. You know, you just have, you know, Aunt Anne and her roommate. Oh, those roommates. <laughs> well, the two of them actually moved in together in an arrangement known at the time as a Boston marriage. So this was a scenario where two financially independent women would live together in the same house as roommates, or roommates, uh, instead of taking husbands. I mean, some of them were legitimately roommates. Not every Boston marriage was a cover yeah. for lesbian activity, but a lot of them were. Yeah, it was just a really convenient cover is all. It was because like there was so much straight girls doing it, and then there's like a bunch of lesbians looked at that were like, eh, eh, mm, well, eh, well. Eh. <laughs> uh, many of the jobs available to women back in the day actually required women to resign once they'd married, so it was not uncommon for professional women to simply move in with each other and carry on their careers. Yeah, especially because you're not getting paid as well, so like you need a roommate. Yeah, pretty much. Female professor does not pay. I mean, it doesn't pay much now, but it didn't pay much then. This was a perfectly socially acceptable practice until the 1920s. Around that time, people began to get suspicious that these Boston marriages might be a front for some ungodly sapphic activity. Does, it takes a while for the Christians to catch on, but when they do... <laughs> they get there. They get there eventually. The straights are coming for you. Well, that's the thing, is like... This is very shocking to modern people who are, like, a, we're a little bit obsessed with homosexuality, but it was genuinely not the first thing that people thought of. No. These are two perfectly nice professional women living together. Yeah, they're not lesbians. I think those have horns. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see any tails. Yeah, they just had this kind of cartoonish idea of what homosexuality was. So as long as you weren't, like, obviously gay and wearing pants, like, no one would say anything. Women also got away with this much better than men did because there was that piece where you had to quit your job. 
Yeah, like, because people kind of understood why you wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, surely two university professors of poetry would never do lesbian things with each other. Learned women. No, never. Never. They would just frequently quote Sappho in the context of Grecan poetry. (laughs) As one does. As one does, like educated people, civilized. Georgia and Anne were kind of pushing their luck. They were doing this in the 1920s when people had... the, The Christians were catching on. Somebody had informed the church. So, uh... They... They got run out of town. (laughs) spoiler alert so it's also while working at the receiving home in 1922 that georgia adopted her first and only child an infant daughter she named june so she herself had an adopted daughter which makes the baby selling thing even more baffling that's that's even weirder so in 1924 georgia was fired from the mississippi children's home society for her quote questionable child placement practices As far as I can tell, she wasn't actually trafficking or selling children at this point, but she was removing children from poor parents without cause and adopting out children whose parents hadn't actually lost their parental rights and hadn't consented to them being adopted. This is a theme throughout George's career, by the way. She fucking hates poor people. She hates them so bad. (laughs) You see, it's one of those fascinating things where, like, she's sympathetic to the idea of these children, but she's not actually sympathetic to the primary place they come from. I mean, this is this was an attitude that persisted in social services for a long time, was that the poor are unfit to raise their children. For, for a long time, uh, and Georgia Tan is certainly not the only one who's held this opinion, the idea was that being raised in wealth or being raised in material comfort was always better for children, and the trauma of being ripped out of their parents' arms was kind of hand-waved away. We're getting better at not doing that. Yeah, b- better, We're better. still better. We're still not good at that. Even when we're being judgmental about these parents not having sufficient resources, the systems we have on the other end are also not well-resourced. No, I've worked in nonprofits my whole career. Can confirm. I mean, today... Being poor is not in in itself grounds to have your children removed from your care. In most circumstances, we try not to permanently remove children from parents just because the parents are poor. Uh, it's it, Things still happen, but back in the day, Georgia was literally like, oh, is this your parents' dumpy house? Get in the car. Like, she didn't have to see another fucking thing. <laughs> Even in 1924, there's due process. Like, you need cause to remove children. Um, there's a court process where, chil- where parents can fight to get their children back. There has to be a formal process where parental rights are terminated. Like, there's still... This is not the Wild West where we just snatch children and give them away. There's still some legal process in place. And Georgia just shat all over it. See, I'm just amazed that a story about a lesbian social worker in the early 20th century has her lose her job for completely reasonable reasons. I mean, people were also very suspicious <laughs> that her like situation with Anne was not what they claimed it was. Like, There was also apparently a great deal of social pressure for them to leave town. But, uh, oh, well. But she did get <laughs> fired for like kidnapping children. That is still the reason she was fired. 
the official reason was the kidnapping, so we can rest easy for once. <laughs> I mean, I have worked in social services since I was 21 years old. I've worked in this field my whole career, mostly with children and teens. And I can pretty confidently say, although most people get into this field for the right reasons, there are definitely people who go into this line of work because it gives you a terrifying amount of power over vulnerable people's lives. Yeah, 100%. There are people just riding that high. That doesn't shock me at all. No, we're. I think we're getting better at weeding them out, mostly with the salary. But <laughs> there's easier ways to have control over people. But you get a lot of control over people's lives in these kinds of positions, and there's always going to be people who abuse that. And Georgia just decided to go for broke. So after being fired, Georgia and Anne briefly moved to Texas with their children and then moved to Memphis, Tennessee, where Georgia became the executive secretary at the Tennessee Children's Home Society. She very quickly maneuvered her way up the ladder of the organization through the use of what one source called aggressive tactics. She basically oh. staged a hostile takeover of a nonprofit for homeless children. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know what you have to do to force You're like out once I'm in control, no one can fire me. Yeah, I mean I can kidnap all the children. She became the director through like sheer force of will. Everyone was like, I mean, I guess. Fine. <laughs> because she's still an extremely inexperienced social worker at this point. She's like worked at the fire department in her hometown without a license for a while. And then she was fired for kidnapping from Mississippi. And now she's the director of another organization. Oh, boy. Yeah, by 1924, she was running the Memphis branch of the organization entirely. I've I've seen some articles describe the Tennessee Children's Home Society as an orphanage, but that's not really the most accurate description of what this organization was. The Tennessee Children's Home Society was a children's welfare nonprofit that operated across Tennessee, with branches in major cities like Knoxville, Memphis, Chattanooga, and Jackson, with Georgia running the Memphis branch. They didn't operate central orphanages of their own. Instead, they found and coordinated placements for children within a complex network of childcare facilities, foster homes, and arranged adoptions for these children whenever it was appropriate. Georgia Tan, of course, decided that when appropriate meant whenever she could make money out of it. Georgia Tan's child selling scheme was actually incredibly simple. There's a reason she was able to get away with it for so long. Adoptions weren't a lawless wasteland, even in 1924. Tennessee did have laws on the books to prevent, like, actual child trafficking. We were live to the possibility of child theft. So the concern wasn't... It was mostly that, like, these children would be sold as actual, like, farm slaves. Yeah. <laughs> we can't <laughs> have that. straight-up slavery. Yeah, no. They were, they were, like, aware that this was a possibility. So, adoption agencies were not allowed to charge adoptive parents money for the children themselves. That, that's still true. They were only allowed to charge administrative fees for their services. And by law, Tennessee adoption agencies could charge a maximum of $7 for an in-state adoption. They had set a price on that. There weren't any limitations on how much adoption agencies could charge an administrative fees for out-of-state adoptions. And I'm guessing you can see... And that's Where we're going. the fucking loophole. <laughs> you immediately see the problem. Oh no. Uh, interstate? You mean the one with the least regulation? Fantastic. Yes. yes, putting them on the other side of the country where there's no recourse. Tan focused most of her operation on out-of-state adoptions, 
she would charge around $750 in fees for an out-of-state adoption, which is an outrageous amount of money at the time. Yeah, and of course you're going to think you're getting the best white baby if you pay that much. Well, and that's that's just kind of her base rate for the adoption fee. She would also find ways to, to charge all kinds of other extra fees. She adopted some children out to the surrounding states of Mississippi, Arkansas, and Missouri. Memphis is right on the border with Mississippi and Arkansas. The big money, though, was in adopting out to families in New York and California, and that's where Georgia concentrated the bulk of her efforts. Of the 5,000 children that she sold throughout her career, 3,000 of them ended up in one of those two states. So she was busy. I, and that's like one of the underappreciated benefits of uh, abolishing child labor. We also got rid of the financial incentive to sell children as slaves. Yeah, I mean, it was a real concern. But, I mean, to her credit, she did not sell them as farm slaves. Many of these children went on to live, like, you know, great lives. The problem is they were ripped away from their biological families without just cause, leading to lifetimes of drama. Also, like, 500 of them died. That's also a problem. Also, the ones who died. I guess. I personally would not murder a child I could get $750 for, and I can't even pay rent with that nowadays. <laughs> oh, in today's money, you don't even need the, like, the conversion. Yeah. She had two social workers in her employee named Regina Warner and Alma Walton. Regina was her New York social worker, Alma was her California worker. Every three weeks, these women would travel to their assigned state with four to six children available to adopt out. They would then rent hotel rooms for the children and hold, quote, viewings, like they would hold viewings like it was a rental property. It's like a show home. They would arrange a time for prospective families to come and view the child. It would be like, well, do you want to make an offer? So in addition to the $750 out-of-state adoption fees, parents would also be charged exorbitant fees for background checks, which were never conducted, um, airfare, hotel costs, and any other trumped-up administrative fees she could think of. All told, the wealthy parents in New York and California could shell out up to $5,000 in adoption fees wow. in 1920s money. Oh so my gosh. That's around $60,000 today. It's a lot of money. It almost cost as much as a house back in the day. Georgia Tan realized that if she was just going to sell these children as farm labor, she wouldn't make nearly as much money. No, um, no. She needed, she needed to emotionally prey on the wealthy. And of course, of course, this gives you a massive incentive to, like, take kids that are relatively healthy. Oh, does it ever. Like, you don't want a sick kid. Oh, no. We, we have ways of dealing with the sick kids. There was no screening process for any of these parents. Georgia seems to have genuinely believed that the only thing that mattered was whether they could afford the fees. She had some pretty hardline views on social class. She believed that the poor were incompetent parents and that the wealthy were good, competent people. Being wealthy was enough to qualify a person to be a good parent. She's like, I was raised by rich people and I grew up fine. But did you, Georgia? Fucking did you. <laughs> oh yeah, a lot of this was like, I mean, she was doing this for profit, for sure. She wanted to be a rich social worker driving around in a fancy car. But she also seems to have genuinely believed this, that children were always better off with wealthy families they didn't know rather than being with their own river trash parents. The money that Georgia collected from these adoptions was deposited directly into an account owned by a shell corporation registered to Georgia Tan. 
She skimmed 80 to 90% off the top and pocketed it. She did not report any of this money to the IRS, and she did not log it in the Tennessee Children's Home Society records. Um, this was her little secret. Tax evasion. Disgusting. That's not the worst of her crimes, but yes. Tax evasion's not technically a crime, but this is this is definitely tax fraud. This, oh, she's for sure committing massive tax evasion. They're gonna get you just like they did Capone. Tax evasion is not illegal in the sense that you have no obligation to maximize your tax burden. Um, but you do have a legal obligation to report all of your income. Yeah, this is tax fraud. <laughs> and that is, that, this... that one super crime. Super crime. Super crime. You're allowed to use whatever dodgy tax tricks you want to lessen your tax burden, so long as they're, like, real. Yeah. <laughs> Just hiding the money and never telling anybody is not a recognized accountant trick. <laughs> no, you gotta tell them how much you made. You can claim huge business losses, I mean, as long as you actually had huge business losses, to lessen your tax burden. You can't just say, like, oh, money? What money? That doesn't work. That is a crime. No, no. The mattress method? Not a recognized approach. Not real. All told, she is estimated to have made around $11 million in today's money through the sale of children. Wow. Yeah. I can, I can tell you from personal experience, social workers typically don't make that kind of money. I'm shocked. Janelle, I thought you were a millionaire. Oh yes, me rolling around in my Scrooge McDuck riches from working at a teen <laughs> homeless shelter. <laughs> of course, in order to make her adoption scheme stick, Georgia needed to break down the social stigma around adoption and make it seem like a desirable thing that rich people would pay lots of money for. Again, people are still real into the eugenics at this time in human history, and they're very wary of adopting a child with bad genes. So to that end, Georgia would falsify the children's backgrounds and records to give them a desirable background. So we're just gonna have, like, a weird amount of rich kids from white parents who need adoption. Yeah, yeah, 100%. A lot of college girls suddenly getting themselves in trouble. That's exactly- she was basically making up D&D character backstories for these kids. Yeah, just rolling their stats. Yeah, she would invent a, an origin story for the children that prospective parents would find very palatable. She would not admit that she stole them off a boat or stole them out of somebody's front yard. Um, she would say that the parents had been upstanding, attractive, college-educated people who had tragically died in a car accident, leaving their child an orphan. They would always have the most socially palatable backstory she could come up with. It was a college girl who got herself in trouble. Like, suspiciously palatable. She also would often claim that the parents were dead or out of the picture when that was not yeah. the case. Just pumping up the market value. This definitely wasn't an unwanted child. They were very much wanted. But mysteriously, there's just been a crazy amount of car accidents here in Tennessee. <laughs> Rich car accidents. <laughs> Rich people just die in car accidents in Memphis at astronomical rates. They've got the survival rates of Formula One race car drivers. It's been weeks since we haven't had a socialite burning covered in oil on the side of the road. <laughs> Georgia would also falsify the children's birth certificates. And not only was this not illegal, it actually became the law in Tennessee to do this for privacy reasons. The practice, started by Georgia Tan, eventually became law in all 50 states and much of Canada and is still continued to this day. Really? Um, wow. Yeah, we falsify adoptees' birth certificates. I feel like a lot of people don't know that. Huh. Um, I did not. 
Of course a con artist came up with that. Well, people who tried to sell children and make sure no one could find out where they came from came up with that. But uh, the idea was that it was for privacy. Birth parents often didn't want to be known. And, like, that makes sense. Yeah, not every place still does this as a matter of practice, but if if you're, like, over 30 and you were adopted, there's a good chance your birth certificate was falsified. Uh, the birthplace is often amended to be wherever the adoption was finalized, regardless of where you were actually born. It's it's the city where the court proceedings happened. And uh, sometimes a fake birth date is picked. Just, they just kind of pick one. So you may not know your real birthday, and you almost certainly don't know your real birthplace. If you come from a state that, that fictionalizes birth certificates to that extent. Fascinating. Yay! Happy 23andMe kit, because that's the only way you're going to find that. Some states do allow adoption records to be unsealed, but uh, but yeah, Georgia Tan started this practice. She would just make fake birth certificates because it would match her story and she could charge more money for children. Babies of only the best pedigree. And she was a big fan of the idea of tabula rasa, which is that people are blanks. The children in, in particular are blank slates. And she would emphasize that to all of her, I mean, I was going to say prospective parents, but their customers, really. She and her staff would tell customers that the children they were adopting were blank slates who carried no baggage from their previous lives and could become anything the adopted parents wanted them to be. It's not really how it works. You can't wish away a child, an adopted child's previous life because it's inconvenient to you personally. Funny how that works. And, and Georgia often took children who were past infancy. So this was especially untrue for them. They some of these children like very much knew they'd been stolen from their families. And uh shut up. Shut up or you're going back. Georgia also like aggressively marketed adoption to the upper classes. In the 1920s, adoption and child welfare organizations like the National Home Finding Society began to push the idea that adoption was a utopian solution to all social ills. One brochure circulated by them promised that adoption would reduce divorce, banditry, and murder, quote, wow. fill all the churches, and exchange immigrants with Americans and stop some of the road leading to war. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. They never missed an opportunity to be oh, racist wow. with this. Like, I think adoption's really good, but I wouldn't go that far. Wow. Adopt a baby. You'll fix global warming. Yeah, that's just it. The idea for other organizations was not really on child welfare or on building a family. The idea was like, these children will become murderers if you don't take them in, and then we will have to bring in immigrants, and they're disgusting. Like, that was really the, the motivational tree here, was like, if you raise them to be productive, we can stop bringing those dirty poles into the country. Like, that was... <laughs> Adopt a Caucasian baby today. Also, the early 20th century was around the time when baby formula started to become widely available. It was only available by prescription before that. This meant that adoptive mothers no longer needed to secure a source of breast milk for adopted infants, which had been a huge barrier to adoption in the past. You, there's just not that many lactating women running around willing to lend a boob. So... <laughs> lend a boob. That's going to be our next world vision. Lend a boob. Talking about the importance of wet nurses. <laughs> it's gonna just make it weird. Lend a hand. Lend a breast. Time to get it off your chest. Jessica, the marketer for... 
shared human breast milk? What a career. Yeah, there are babies and perverts out there who need it. I mean, that was a real thing. If you if you came into possession of an infant in the like 19th century, you had to secure a source of breast milk. And, you know, there's there's just you need to find a lactating woman with a free tit. That's kind of how it goes. <laughs> that was the process. Yeah, I mean, it was a huge barrier to adoption. You either needed a woman who'd, like, given birth recently or was kind of continuing to... You needed a wet nurse who just was, like, continually nursing babies. This is... You can't lactate through sheer force of will, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, It won't stop me from trying. Can't just... Squeeze that out. I'll save you, children. I'll save you. Yeah, no. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I could just get diagnosed with schizophrenia. Uh, I could start taking some serious antipsychotics, and then we can feed this kid right here. I I don't think you can breastfeed if you're taking antipsychotics and overfist to the extent that you're lactating. But I am going to have breast milk, male or female. <sighs> well, what a plan. Couples have struggled with infertility since the like the dawn of time. This was this was still an issue in the 1920s. Georgia kind of capitalized on that. She advertised adoption as a way to make your family complete uh, and also to make sure that your husband wouldn't leave you for being barren. Um it's a bad time to be a woman. She went as far as running ads in the newspapers to literally advertise children available to be adopted. Buy a baby today. She would run ads with pictures of cherubic blonde children with captions like, Yours for the asking. Georgie wants to play catch, but he needs a daddy to complete the team. Gross. It it was an innocent time. Yeah. Don't make Georgie play with daddy. Georgie needs a daddy. Yeah, that means something very different today. I would not assume that that was an ad for, like, Mm -mm, mm -mm. adoption. That feels like a fetish thing. For sure it is. Georgie is an 18-year-old twink. Georgie wants an older daddy. Georgie's just fine with an older daddy. A sugar daddy. (laughs) We've ruined that word. That used to be such an innocent word. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I was lucky. I would call my dad dad. I don't know how people who actually called their father daddy are supposed to feel. My landlord in New York City called his father daddy, and it was real weird because he was a man in his early 40s. Oh, no. And we would, we would like, go and we'd be like, hey, our sink isn't working. And he'd be like, okay, hang on one sec. And he'd, like, pick up his phone and he'd be like, daddy. We're like, nope, it's weird. We'll just live with a broken <laughs> sink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was real weird. His, 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 his father was, like, a real estate mogul. And, like, he'd given his son this building to play with. And every time we had a complaint, he would just call up daddy. And we're like, nope, it, it can wait. Oh. We actually don't need power. Just it can remember. wait. It can wait so long. <laughs> it can it was, wait forever. It was weird. It was real weird. Yeah, that's that's a word we've ruined. Even even back in the day, I feel like you aged out of daddy. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's time to retire that like, one. There's an age at which daddy is no longer appropriate. I mean, mommy is coming up close behind it. That one's also gotten weird and oh, sexual. Oh, so close. I, I had a guy call me mommy once, and I'm like, oh, nope, stop. Mm-mm. We do not like that shit at all. Absolutely not. Incorrect. I don't even call my mom mommy. That's not okay. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. But yeah, without age limits, uh, most of the parents that Georgia adopted out to were couples in their 40s and 50s, which made them too old to adopt in most other states at the time. So she she was really pushing her market. 
Georgia also really pushed the idea of adopting a child for Christmas the way some people give a puppy as a gift. Oh, yeah, that's... Mm-mm. Yeah, is your infertile wife a real bummer around the holidays? Buy her a son to play with. Like, that was kind of the sentiment. <laughs> uh, that'll shut her up. Make her stop her infernal crying. Buy her a pet daughter. Like, that's that was really the sentiment. Fuck. Here. Like, it, it, is, it is one of those odd things where it's like, you really shouldn't think of children, like, you should think of them as a gift in kind of like a vague spiritual sense. You probably <laughs> shouldn't think of them as literally something to get your wife for Christmas. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you shouldn't buy anybody a living thing for Christmas. That's just generally bad. A child is a lot more work than a puppy. Like, I understand, like, there's a lot of misogyny in the in the early 20th century, but the kind where you can just, like, buy someone a baby without discussing it with them first. Very weird. Very strange. It's like all those commercials you see where it's, like, it's somebody, like, surprising their spouse with, like, a multi-thousand, tens of thousand dollar vehicle, and I'm like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how who is- Who are you? How is that not a group decision? No, that's a fucking discussion. You put the family in debt and you didn't talk about whether or not you actually needed a new SUV? What the fuck, Daniel? But look, honey, I got us a car payment. <laughs> like, yeah. Mm. You know, you know how you were mad at me for how bad I am about spending money without discussing it with you? I got you a car. That makes up for it. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, it's not bad. ideal. Definitely not ideal. Just... She also advertised adoption as an attractive option for actresses, socialites, and celebrities who wanted children but simply didn't have the time to fit a pregnancy into their busy schedule. I guess. And for what it's worth, that line worked. Many rich, powerful people over the years adopted children from the Tennessee Children's Home Society. And I mean, uh, the word adoption, adopted is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. Perhaps the most famous customer that she ever had was the actress Joan Crawford, who adopted her twin daughters, Kathy and Cynthia, from the agency. That's a weird thing to know about Joan Crawford. It is a weird thing to know about Joan Crawford, who apparently was like, according to her daughter's tell-all book, a less-than-ideal mother. Ah, well. <laughs> guess guess we got our, all that work we needed from those background checks. Oh, they weren't- they didn't even try. <laughs> Your background check was the check clearing. That was about it. Didn't bounce. Congratulations, you're a mom. Pretty much. Movie star couple Dick Powell and June Allison also adopted their daughter Pamela from Georgia Tan. And professional wrestler Ric Flair, one of the most celebrated professional wrestlers in history. Ric Flair. Like, woo? Like, yeah. Woo. Like that Ric Flair. Woo. Yeah, Ric Flair? Yeah. Okay, Ric Flair. He, uh, the professional wrestler, was a Tennessee Children's Home Society baby. Um, oh my gosh, really? Oh, oh yeah, this was far-reaching. Uh, that explains a lot. His his Richard <laughs> his legal name is Richard Flair, spelt differently. But his birth name is believed to be Fred Phillips. Georgia completely changed children's names after she would steal them. And she picked Richard Flair? Apparently. Apparently she was running low on ideas that week. The, the Tennessee Children's Home Society's record stated that Rick's parents had abandoned him, but there's really just no way to know for sure how he actually came to be in their care. He's 100% a stolen Bayou kid. For sure. No way. For sure. <laughs> Stole yeah, that one. explains a lot about him. Straight out of the swamp. <laughs> Even the governor of New York, Herbert Lehman, adopted somewhere between one and three of his children from Georgia Tan. 
How do we not know? <laughs> These records were kept secret. This was this was something he really didn't advertise, the fact that his children were adopted. But in what I'm sure is a crazy random coincidence, he also passed a law in New York State that bans adoptees from getting access to their own birth records. And that law is still in effect to, like today. That's, that law has never been repealed. So where did Georgia get the children that she sold to rich people like designer dogs? You know the answer's bad. You know it's bad. No, absolutely. Uh, it's it's worse than you think, actually. It's actually worse than stealing people. It's worse than stealing children so out of excited. people's front lawns. It's You're horrific. building it up. So enticing. In 1930, Memphis only had a population of 253,000 people. If that seems kind of low for a city to produce 5,000 adoptable, mostly white, mostly blonde orphans, you are 100% correct. Since Memphis didn't produce enough genuinely orphaned, healthy, fair-haired, blue-eyed white babies to feed her growing business, uh, she had to procure her children through incredibly unethical means. Um, if you are a parent listening to this podcast, prepare to be very upset. Not enough orphans? Why don't you just make some? Make some orphans. Uh, well, she didn't actually kill people, but she, she did some bad things. Georgia had very powerful allies and friends in high places that helped her carry out her operation for so long. One of her most vital allies was a corrupt juvenile court judge named Camille Kelly. Interestingly, she was a real hippie of a judge, being one of the only practicing female judges of the era, who wore colorful dresses to court instead of robes and pinned flowers to her shoulder to cheer up the children in her courtroom. She had a very compassionate and progressive view of juvenile justice, and emphasized the importance of having sympathy for a youth's circumstances rather than simply punishing them. I mean, she believed all of this outwardly, but then she also helped Georgia Tan sell children in exchange for kickbacks. She used her power to permanently remove children from their parents without cause at Georgia's command and turn them over to the Tennessee Children's Home Society. She was especially known for terminating the custody of divorced and single mothers, and she rammed hundreds of adoption proceedings through the court without following any applicable state laws in exchange for kickbacks from the sales of those children. Oh. Okay. (laughs) How do I deal with the fact there are so many single and divorced mothers? Oh, yeah. I know. I'm gonna devastate them permanently. Tan was also buddy-buddy with the corrupt mayor of Memphis, E.H. Boss Crump, who was notorious for taking bribes from illegal businesses in exchange for turning a blind eye. He was sort of a shitheel. He was known to be a shitheel. Although he did many non-shitheel things for shitheel reasons. For instance, E.H. Uh, e. Crump was a huge supporter of voting rights for black people, and he actually went as far as to pay the poll tax for black citizens from his own personal money to ensure they could vote, because they overwhelmingly voted for him. So, you know. Non-shitheel thing, shitheel reason to do it. Ah. <laughs> non-assholey things with asshole reasons. You can't. Mayor Crump appears to have bought into the idea, or at least pretended that he bought into the idea, that Georgia Tan was simply a hard-working social worker trying to find good homes for unfortunate, destitute children, and the two of them developed a close friendship. This gave Georgia certain status in Memphis and access to very powerful friends. At the peak of her operation, she had a large network of corrupt social workers, police, doctors, and nurses that she bribed in exchange for their help acquiring children. Because of course you need bribery. You, you couldn't run this effectively without people helping you. You have to bribe people. No, you need to bribe the shit out of everybody. Everybody's getting bribes. 
So, Georgia often collected the children born to women in prisons and mental asylums, or to women and girls who were otherwise wards of the state, using courts to illegally and prematurely terminate the mother's parental rights. She also used the court to terminate the rights of single, unwed, or divorced parents, having the state declare them unfit, and saying that the children needed to be sent to more suitable homes. Yeah, like, this is why poor people don't trust Child Protective Services. <laughs> no, and they- I mean, this, this practice went on for a long time. Do you remember how we said it used to be a fairly common practice for families to send their children to orphanages temporarily while the family got back on their feet? And then they would go pick their children up? Georgia would adopt those children out and destroy the records, leaving the birth family absolutely no means of tracking their children down, and she never told them where they had gone. She would also just literally steal children from nursery schools. Oh my gosh. Uh, parents- Oh yeah, she would just like take them off the lawn. They're coming at the end of the day! She would walk into nursery schools and just take the blondes. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. So- She's just a legit kidnapper. Parents would drop their kids off at nursery school, and when they came back at the end of the day to pick the children up, they were told that the children had been seized by child welfare authorities and that there was no means to get them back. What the fuck? She was- Oh yeah, she just went baby shopping at nursery schools. Openly baby shopping. How could you run a business like this? Honestly, if there's yeah. one- Like, two stolen children, I remove my kids from nursing- Nursery school. Holy fuck. <laughs> you cannot, you cannot Jessica has a firm two kidnapping threshold. Yeah, two kidnapping. Like, one could be a mistake. It could just be, like, the non-custodial <laughs> dad. This is fucked. <laughs> I like that you reserve this much outrage for the second kidnapping. The first kidnapping is a fluke. We, we let that one slide. You get a freebie. Yeah. And I mean, like, if I was being perfectly fair, I'd leave it to three so I have a legit pattern. But two's too much of a coincidence. I'm not, I'm not risking it. <laughs> um, I will let go of the first a... fucking kid <laughs> I am nothing if not fair I give second chances I believe in forgiveness Jessica is suddenly a proponent for child leashes Just keep them on a leash Child leashes, adult leashes, drunk leashes Come on, there could just be a lot more leashes in society It doesn't have to be a kink thing Upsetting This is also not the first time we brought up kink and child leashes is it? I'm genuinely impressed we've made it this far. Hooray for us. I literally, literally there's a joke about you making a, making a comment about ball gags in children. Nope, it was cock rings. It was TV worse. Page. Oh, yeah, yeah, cock rings. Don't credit me with being not as fully horrible as I am. <laughs> I always believed in you. In a particularly evil move, Georgia also stole babies from maternity hospitals. What the Once again, fuck? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Generally the children of unwed and single mothers. She would trick the women into signing surrender papers for their infants and any other children that they might have oh, while they my were dumped up on pain medication. She took, she cleared them out. Like, she would take all the children. I'm emptying the bank. The baby bank. Like, so you're just, you're just like, you're fucked up on meds. This random woman comes in, has you sign something, then you wake up and all three of your kids are gone. Yeah, no, that's exactly what happened. Like, this feels like a Twilight Zone episode. Rod Stewart's gonna come in and is just like, that's some fucked up shit, right? They used to drug you good for childbirth. Oh, like, compared yeah. to the drugs, they you drugged you good smacked. in the 1920s. So, yeah, you just have, like, a random employee of the hospital. You have a random social worker showing up waving papers in your face. 
Yeah. You don't for a second think that the state's actually going to steal your kids. Yeah, you're on the good shit. You don't read it. What a fool you have been. Um, and you're you're typically single and unwed, so you're there by yourself. You should not be allowed to sign away your children where you're hopped up on morphine. No. I don't believe in- I believe- like, Obviously, I'm a middle-aged libertarian with a hot Asian wife, but I think there should be some limit. <laughs> what a- What a stance, Jessica. What a stance for morality. Georgia also had a trick where, right after birth, nurses that she had obviously bribed- I don't think this is gonna be a fun trick. No, it's not a good trick. It's a bad trick. Um, nurses would tell the birth mother there was something wrong with the baby and that the baby had to be taken for immediate medical treatment. They would then hand over the baby to Georgia and tell the birth mother the baby had died. What the fuck? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yes, bad. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I mean, like, it's completely believable because they have a horrifying death rate to begin with. But isn't somebody gonna ask for the corpse? Yeah, they would just sort of be like, they would always claim that the Tennessee Children's Home Society had handled the burial. They would sort of be like, oh, well, we, uh, we took care of it for you. Why is an orphanage handling the burial? Yeah, don't ask questions, you dumb poor. It's complimentary. Yeah, pretty much. Complimentary it baby was, burial. It was kind of played like off as like, this is something kind we're doing for you, you poor destitute slut. Like, it was, it was sort of painted as like, we're doing you a favor, shut the fuck up. Holy shit, the social bigotry against unwed mothers. For real, wow. like, women would try to track these children down. Like, a lot of them were like, what the fuck do you mean my child died? That doesn't sound real. You don't seem sad. <laughs> that was the thing, is, like, these women had absolutely no social clout. They had no money. They had no ability to go up against a beloved social worker because, you know, who's gonna believe them? When she got particularly desperate, Georgia Tan would just straight up kidnap children off the street. She would just drive around poor neighborhoods. Looking for blind kids. Yeah, she was just, she was out baby shopping. If she saw a kid that looked like something she could sell, she would just sort of tell them to get in the car and drive off with them. The uh, parents would later just be told that the children had been permanently seized by the state and that they had no opportunity to get them back. What the actual fuck? Yeah. See, that's the reason why this only works if you're doing it against poor people who don't know their legal rights. Oh, for sure. You can't do this with rich people. You could not do this to anybody who has access to a lawyer. No, and you need people that aren't going to be believed. Like, you need people who have social issues. You need people that are seen as untrustworthy. You need... You need undesirables. You know, you want to pick people who um, are inherently seen as not great parents. You know, even if they do come forward, there's a chance people are just going to be like, well, the baby's probably better off in a different home anyway. Like, look at you. No, it has to be someone with, like, no social sympathy who cannot make their case publicly. Georgia didn't operate alone. She employed a team of what she called child spotters, who were mostly social workers, who would literally just search for children for Georgia to take. So basically, if you were a poor parent in Memphis at the time and Georgia decided she wanted your kids, there was nothing you could do about it. You had no opportunity to fight back. Here's just like one horrific story of her tactics. A woman named Alma Sippel said that Tan came to her door in 1945, shortly after she'd given birth to her daughter Irma, saying she was investigating a case of child abuse involving someone else in the neighborhood. Alma was an unwed mother in her early 20s. She had a two-year-old son from a previous marriage, and her boyfriend-slash-fiancé, Irma's father, was in the army and had only just shipped out to Panama. 
The young mother was twice divorced, having married at the first time at 14 to escape from her abusive and impoverished family in Kentucky. She herself was still incredibly poor, living in a one-room apartment and sleeping out on a pull-out sofa bed with her toddler son, which made her basically the perfect target for Tan. Tan noticed that the baby had a cold, but the mother said she couldn't afford a doctor. Tan then generously volunteered to take the infant to the doctor on the mother's behalf and return her afterwards. The mother agreed because she had no other means of getting her infant medical care, and she said that Georgia Tan had such an air of authority that you just kind of went along with whatever she said. Other people would often report the same thing about Tan over the years. She had the mother sign a piece of paper, um, which in hindsight was likely surrender papers, and after she'd signed, she told the mother she would not be able to accompany them to the hospital. Georgia took the baby away and never brought her back, and when Alma went to the hospital the following day to visit her daughter, she was told, quote, None of the children here are yours. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah, they're all they're all in Georgia's pocket. She's paid everybody off. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, because, like, everyone knows, like, if someone's looking for a social worker who stole their baby. Yep, no. Georgia's on her shit again. Georgia called her days later to tell her that Irma had died from pneumonia and that she had already had her buried by the state. She would not tell Alma where her daughter's grave was, and all of Alma's calls to the Tennessee Children's Home Society were answered with simply, the case is closed and no further information. Sketchy. Of course, Irma wasn't dead, obviously. She had been renamed Sandra and adopted out to a wealthy 30-something couple in Ohio who reportedly doted on her. She was raised as an only child, and although she knew she was adopted, she said she'd had such a great life with her adoptive parents that she had no desire to find her birth parents. She always just assumed that she was an illegitimate child who'd been given up because she wasn't wanted. 44 years later, in 1989, Alma happened to be watching an episode of Unsolved Mysteries that covered the Georgia Tan story. She recognized Georgia immediately, and when the documentary talked about Georgia's habit of telling mothers that their babies had died, she realized this is probably what had happened to her. Sure enough, a volunteer agency that reunites families affected by the Tennessee Children's Home Society was able to reconnect mother and daughter after 44 years apart. Fuck. Fuck. Because, like, it's such a sympathetic thing. Like, of course you assumed you were unwanted. Why would you assume that you were stolen? Well, yeah, I mean... This is a complicated thing for all people who are adopted, is how much to find out about their origins or... Yeah, because it can be very hurtful. Whether to find out... I mean, yeah, like, you may not like what you find. So, and that's that's one of the reasons why many of these families were never reunited, and why many people who have a connection to this scandal may never know about it. Many people were just content to th that they were adopted and they felt no need to go searching for anything about their origins. That's going to conclude part one. Part one. More baby napping next week. Yes, we're going to pick up next week with how Georgia Tan's baby selling operation finally came crashing down and what happened afterwards. But, uh, but yeah, I hope you've, I don't know, enjoyed? Enjoyed is never the right never word. Never the right word. Learned? Appreciated. No. Contemplated. The, contemplated this dark chapter of American history. I've been Jessica. And I have been Janelle. And this has been Histories and Mysteries. <laughs>